everyone. Welcome to episode 52 of the MTG Gridecast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me, as always, is Collins Mullen. Hey, Collins. Hey, Chris. What's up? Um, I mean, kind of a little bit this time. I can't say, like, not much that hard. I did manage to <laughs> top eight the Magic Online PTQ hey. this week. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Uh could not quite close it though unfortunately well yeah but still a good run regardless yeah definitely a good run uh definitely enjoyed it uh ran into a very powerful mono red draw in the quarterfinals and, and just got run over really hard uh-huh. but at least you know i didn't stay up like two and a half more because i it's really awkward on uh german time zones to play in these scheduled premiere events so i was up playing the quarterfinals at like 2 30 in the morning so losing at five in the morning in the finals would have also been like super terrible so right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> for extra daggers you can stay up for two more hours or whatever. <laughs> yeah i mean it's tough and yeah for sure i understand how being in a way different time zone makes things pretty complicated from your end you know yep. still good runs and everything uh you ended up it was standard standard ptq and yep. you ended up playing mono green is that right yeah, I just took Andrew Jessup's 75 out of his article and just played it card for card. I mean, hard to go wrong there, so... <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I've been playing this format, but I've been ex- I've been playing a bunch of different decks and uh, not, like, focusing in on, like, getting every card choice perfect, so it was definitely hard for me to question those choices particularly hard. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we'll, we'll definitely talk about, you know, Mono Green's place in the standard metagame in our standard topic, which will be coming up in just a minute. Very nice. Let's do it. So before we get started, I definitely want to thank our patrons. Uh, New patrons this week are Daniel Gowlett and Benjamin Rice. So thank you guys so much for supporting us. Um, If you'd also like to support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast, or you can go to mtggrindcast.com. We've got a link there. Um, but yeah, if you just want to throw a dollar or two our way, that would be fantastic. The show is always free, but the support we get, I mean, it's just super helpful. It, it really helps us keep making content and, and doing more of this. And uh, we really, really appreciate the patrons that we do have. And yeah, so thank you guys so much. But moving on to our... So uh, let's start with a keep or mull, as usual. So this is one from a competitive league that i played not from the ptq uh, but this is going to be with mono green sort of keeping the theme for the day this is game three against so it's not really grixis energy it was you know there's all these iterations of these blue black and red decks with their sort of removal suites chosen from among those colors and this one was uh so this is a game three on the play against what's really a, a blue black mid-range deck splashing for nicole bolus so I saw cast downs and essence scatters and fatal pushes and post board saw even gifted etherborns. So they were very black blue focused. And so this hand is a one lander. This is blueing marsh and Alanoir elves. And we've got a steel leaf champion, a green belt rampager, a scrap heap scrounger, a thorn lieutenant, and a blossoming defense. So very threat heavy, very mana light, um, but it does have kind of the equivalent of two lands with that turn one blooming marsh into Lanoir Elves go. So this was a very tough decision for me. 
because I am greedy. <laughs> right. This hand, it looks very tempting, for sure, because it has, you know, Blooming Marsh and Atlanta World, so we have, you know, our colors, and we have our turn one mana dork, which is what we're always looking for. Um, and we even have just, like, you know, kind of what these hands always look like, which is just a bunch of really good spells in them. We've got the Seal of Champion that we could play on turn two if we draw a land. We even have, you know, two two drops, just like the creatures that we want to beat down. We have a Blossoming Defense, which is going to be really good because our opponent is likely going to be on, you know, removal spell heavy draws in the early game. So definitely pretty tempting, but I just feel like it it would be too easy to fall too far behind if we don't hit our land drop on time. Yep. So on the draw, I'm pretty happy to keep a hand like this. Uh, we get an extra shot at finding our land. We have our mana dork, and you know, and then just because we have that extra, like the extra draw step, essentially towards towards finding the land, it I feel more comfortable keeping it. But the problem is with this hand is that we not only do we need to draw a land pretty much immediately in order to like get the you know the sea leaf champion down, which is going to be able to get around his like early removal spells, but if we are, it's likely that our opponent has some sort of early removal spells, and if he just decides to kill our Llanowar Elves, then we're way far away from even being able to play Magic appropriately. Mm-hmm. So that that is a, like an, another consideration for me to uh, shy away from this hand. And then, you know, on top of all of that, we have a Blossoming Defense in our hand, which we can only really ever utilize if we're in a spot where we can hold, have a mana available to hold up. And kind of like use that tempo advantage to you know force him to use a, a removal spell that's hopefully more than just one mana, so we get a mana advantage out of it. But we just don't have the mana to spare. We're we're gonna be dumping uh, all of our mana into casting the creatures in the first couple of turns. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of like not a card that we're gonna be able to utilize for a long time. And if we do end up being stuck on on like even like if we draw a land or two, we're gonna be stuck on a few lands for a while. And it's pro- it's you know it's unlikely that that card's going to be relevant until the late game, which is yeah. fine. But it, you know, in terms of like looking at an opener, it's kind of it, it it's kind of strange to say, but it feels like having this blossoming defense in your hand feels like having like a, a five or a six drop in your hand almost. It's sure. just a card that you're not going to be able to utilize until much later in the game. Yeah, um, which is just another incentive for me to to win a mulligan. Yeah, no, I I definitely understand thoughts? that. So just to go just a little bit, you know, to to point out some things that are like really easy to miss about this hand so like turn to steel leaf champion is like the premier thing that the deck is capable of and the fact that this hand has three out of the four cards to get there i think is what makes it the most tempting especially on the play against a deck like blue black i actually kind of disagree a little bit about the blossoming defense being so slow in the opening hand because if i have a steel leaf champion in play like i'm willing to slow down my threat deployment in order to protect the steel leaf champion because it just represents so much damage every time you untap with it you're just gaining so much advantage Uh, especially because my opponent showed me that their post board plan included gifted etherborns so many of my threats are not so strong against that plan but Steel Leaf Champion doesn't get blocked by Gifted Aetherborn. So if this hand does yield the turn two Steel Leaf Champion and they don't have exactly cast down on turn two to get rid of it because the turn two Steel Leaf Champion is immune to Essence Scatter, then 
I, I feel like this hand is almost impossible to, to lose with against their deck because their deck is so reactive, they're going to have to pay four mana to try to kill the Steely of Champion, and I'm just going to have Blossoming Defense up as long as the Champion is in play. So that's the reason to me that this hand is so tempting. But the reasons that it is bad are, you named most of them, and there's one one reason that's also like slightly isn't always going to come to fruition but is a, you know a reasonable reason to downgrade this hand so if we do miss our first or our second land drop so the blue black deck is unlikely to turn one fatal push lanoir elves because their lands just don't actually allow them to do that that often you know they've got four fetid pools and four drowned catacombs and they have a reasonable number of swamps but it's especially because they are splashing red they just don't have a ton of the turn one sources so i I think it's very likely that we untap with the lanoir elves but if we miss the second land drop then they are aiming whatever two mana removal spell they have at the lanoir elves and they're just ignoring the scrap heap scrounger and then from there we're in a lot of trouble so you know i think it's easy to look at this hand and be like ah if we miss a land drop then we can still play scrappy scrounger on two and then you know even if we miss another we can still play thorn lieutenant but if we miss a land drop and then they cast down the lanoir elves then we might just pretty much never be casting any relevant spells this game and i think that's a pretty likely result with this hand and that's I, i think that is the, you know, the final thing that makes me go, okay, yeah, this hand is not good enough. For sure. Like, some of these hands, you know, you can you can keep against decks that you know, like, aren't going to interact early or whatever. But the, just the number of, you know, we know that we're playing a very interactive matchup. And if we brick just once, then the jig's up, right? Yeah, then they know exactly what the hand is. Yeah. Yeah, right. If we, if we don't draw exactly Forest or, you know, another Blooming Marsh next turn, we're essentially playing with a hand revealed at that point. Because the, <laughs> the control player is going to be like, oh, I wonder what their hand looks like. It's probably a bunch of gas. You know what I mean? And that that to me is just such a detriment. And you're you're a you're a favorite to miss, especially because your uh, woodland cemeteries don't come into play untapped when you only have a blooming marsh. So that right, that which, hurts yeah, too. which makes you even more of a favorite. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like I you know I wouldn't be sad to draw that card if I kept this hand. Right. But um, but it makes it worse. It it wouldn't it wouldn't be pretty. <laughs> yep. Yep. I agree with all of that. All right, so standard. So this is the list that I played in the Moto PTQ and I think this week in standard, I think Mono Green was a big part of the story this week. In the PTQ, there were 3 Mono Green builds in the top 8. Uh, I know a Mono Green deck won the classic and it was not as all over the place in the open, but it's been making its presence very much known online. Um, I think, you know, part of it is maybe that people saw, like, when they made their the, the ban and restricted announcement that Mono Green had the best win percentage against the field, and so that might have encouraged more people to pick it up. And the printing of Thorn Lieutenant is kind of a big deal for the deck because it gives it a much better two-drop than the other options that it had before. Um, and it does a pretty good job against a lot of these Mono Red decks. So I don't know if you've gotten... Uh, I know you played with this deck quite a bit at the beginning of last standard season, 
Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the current iterations or if you've tried it out and 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 actually I don't even know what you played at the at the open this weekend. So yeah, so yeah, go, go tell me about uh, tell me your standard right, thoughts. Yeah, it's it's not that unlikely that I end up playing mono green at the open this weekend for sure. Uh, I think the mono green is very strong and it fits my play style, which which I you know I always enjoy. Mm-hmm. Right, it just kind of like does a very consistently powerful thing um, very frequently. So I I definitely like like the look of it right now. Unfortunately, I, you know, I haven't played quite as much standard lately as modern, just mm-hmm. because I'd been in the modern seat for a little bit. So I'm, I'm, I'm probably sure. going to default to your judgment on a lot of that stuff. But just looking at the numbers, it, it you know, Monogreen is everywhere. And kind of the funny story about when we like first heard that in new standard, Monogreen was going to be a big thing. So Andrew Jessup uh, kind of like tweeted near the end of last week that he had gone 17-0 and in standard with, you know, with whatever he was playing with. And so we were all kind of, like, scrambling to figure out what that <laughs> deck was, right? And on Magic Online, he had 5-0'd, like, the guy's clearly a monster in New Standard because he had 5-0'd a couple, like, uh, like two leagues with two different decks that had been posted on Magic Online. So, like, right. at first we assumed that he was 17-0 with, like, Grixis. And then we thought that he might be 17-0 with, like, blue-white control or something like that. Because we kept on, like, you know, all of our, all the lowest box guys kept on, like, pairing up against him. And he was, like, playing a different deck each time. Um, so we were trying to figure out which deck that he had just, like, gone on that streak with. Um, uh, because 17-0 is getting to the point where it's, like, a sample size is, like, okay, you know, you're this deck is doing something that is we need to take notice right mm-hmm. you know it's not a huge sample size but it's andrew jessup and if he's playing it then right that's that's exactly what you need to win a gp so that's a that's a pretty good record right yeah yeah for sure we were scrambling to figure out what it was and then he posted his article and even like after his article went up we we still thought it that it was uh like grixis or something but then later we found out that he actually went seventeen and zero with the with the with the mono green stompy list mm-hmm. and ended up playing the stompy list to a top eight finish at the open. So, yep. uh, yeah, I mean the deck is is very real. I know Matthew Folks has been playing it a lot on on Twitch recently. Um, it's just kind of taken over. So it's clearly very strong, but it's also worth considering the fact that uh, it's gonna have a big target on its head because it's. The cat's out of the bag, right? Everybody knows that people are packing mono green. Yeah, and this is not the kind of deck that can survive having a target on its head. A, a deck that's 34 creatures is pretty exploitable in a lot of different ways. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Very easily. And it's also worth noting that the other big standout deck was... Or another big deck that got a lot of press and popularity uh, because of Jonathan Rossum's article on Star City Games and... Both he and Dylan made top eight of the the team open with blue white control. Uh, blue white control is just going to be a, 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 a nightmare for these decks to to beat. Yeah, it is an atrocious matchup. <laughs> yeah, they play so many sweepers, and our like control techie card is vine mare, and they could just sweep it away with you know fumigator settle or whatever. Yep. Um, and Andrew, um, so the list that I copied from Andrew's article kind of ignored blue-white control and written some, you know, its sideboard was more geared towards like, you know, having the that weird green removal spell in nature's way that I actually really liked a lot all tournament because I played against mono red uh, six times or something like that. Um, yeah. And uh, 
for the open, Andrew played a couple of duresses in his sideboard. And I think I kind of disagree with that. I think, number one, duress is just so hard to cast out of this deck. Uh, you have eight black sources, uh, full stop. And, like, I understand that duress is a card that you're not planning on casting it turn one. You are planning on casting it on, like, the Settle the Wreckage turn to clear the way for a good attack. Um, or you're planning on casting it before they cast Fumigate or, or something like that. And, and, like, Duress is pretty valuable all game long against blue-white, but if you can't cast it on the critical turn, like the first critical turn, where you really need to get that settle out of their hand, then it it, it, it loses a lot of its value. And I think with just eight sources, it's, it's hard for me to buy having Duress in this deck. And I also think... Interesting. That... It is really... I, I don't really want to be hedging that way. If I'm expecting enough blue-white that I want to put a card that's that hard to cast in my sideboard, like almost specifically for that matchup, then I think I just don't want to be on this deck at all. Um, I, I think I would rather make a different meta call completely because, uh, you know, like those game ones against blue-white are just so awful and, you know, it doesn't get that much better post-board. Yeah, that makes sense. But what I really do like is if people are casting targeted removal spells, and even the Grixis decks have kind of like adapted a, a little bit, I, I started seeing a lot more Essence Scatters and Cast Downs and, you know, like Gifted Aetherborns and stuff over Abrades and Magma Sprays and that sort of thing. So even the, even the Grixis decks can adapt, but in like a Grixis-heavy metagame, Having Blossoming Defense and having Vine Mare, the I I don't have a good nickname for this thing, but that horse is uh, <laughs> it's definitely a monster. So you know if, if you're exploiting the metagame, like here's the position of the deck is is this: you have all of these four toughness guys that make most of your like average draws line up pretty well against any red decks draws that aren't spectacular. And then you have powerful tools like Blossoming Defense and Vine Mare that really punish the mid-range, like, Vraska's Contempt kind of decks. And so if that's the meta that you're expecting is heavily composed of those two decks, then this, then this deck is a really good choice. And I think that's why it did so well at the PTQ, because the meta that I was seeing online and then the meta that I saw in the PTQ itself was almost entirely red decks and blue-black-red mid-range decks of some sort i mean I, I played against the only decks that I, were not that that i played against in the ptq were one blue black god pharaoh's gift deck which i got very lucky against and one mono blue storm which uh, we probably need to talk about mono blue storm in a minute <laughs> but <laughs> oh for sure for sure but i but i had a thrashing bratadon at the right time and and um so that that matchup didn't seem terrible although i had never played against it before that but so if if you're gonna play against a lot of red decks and a lot of grixis decks then this is a great deck if you might play against a couple of blue white control decks and most of the grixis decks have adapted uh to have their removal be essence scatters and cast downs and cut to ribbons uh then this deck gets a lot worse yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense for sure um, and another deck that I'm concerned to play against with Monogreen is actually Blue-White Gift. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, definitely. I think that that deck might be kind of like, you know, it's it's definitely been very popular in the past in Standard, like recent past, but it was like during a time that not a lot of people were paying attention to to what was going on in Standard, interestingly enough. Like, like I'm pretty sure like the last Grand Prix before M19 came out, a bunch of pros, including like Brad Nelson and Corey Baumeister were on Blue White Gift as like their, you know, this is what we believe is going to be the best thing at the end of this format. And then M19 came out and everybody, you know, started scrambling and playing new stuff and everything. But I, I definitely think that Blue White Gift is like another deck that really has a, a pretty good matchup against this the mono green deck. And uh, at the same time, might just be like pretty well positioned against the field. But I don't know how much you've seen uh, out of that deck. Yeah, so that it's definitely a tough matchup for mono green. Having the four Brontodon's main deck helps against their plan A. But they also just have that plan B of like casting a bunch of angels of sanctions and stuff, and that's yeah, right. That's that can be pretty I think brutal. Why it becomes th- that's why it's a problem matchup for a lot of decks. Like, um, I guess we didn't shout out yet Lotus Box's performance at this Open this weekend, but <laughs> yeah, holy cow, yeah. that was that was fun to watch. Two two Lotus Box teams in the top eight, and um, you know, like I was watching uh, John Rossum playing blue white control against gift and i mean game one gift just had turn three refurbish on the play so that wasn't really winnable but then post board it just played that mid-range game that it plays and you know john had to board to respect it as a combo deck because refurbish into gift like can't be allowed to happen if you're blue white control but then the deck just played a bunch of uh, angels and forced forced John to counter a champion of wits, so then he was able to eternalize it and just buried him under cards. So like that plan B of the blue white gift deck is just really strong against. You can't just rely on naturalizing the gift; you're just going to lose to the cards. Yeah, right for sure. So that that deck is pretty real. Although it's not even the only gift deck. Like that the blue black gift deck is pretty real too. Stitcher Supplier is a a pretty powerful card that I kind of missed on my first run through of the spoiler, but definitely gives that that list some legs. Uh, it's a, that's a, that that also is a scary deck for the mono green deck. I did play against it once in the PTQ and got pretty lucky, but playing against it in queues has been very difficult. Like depending on how many chupacabras and hostage takers they're running, I think those lists are not good yet, though. So I think whoever takes a uh, Blue black God Pharaoh's gift and makes a seventy five. That's correct. Is going to have a lot more success with it. Like the deck is just so much better when it draws gate to the afterlife, and a lot of these lists aren't running any trophy mages at all, which I think is really hurting their consistency. So uh, I'd like to see someone who who really takes it and 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 breaks it down and makes the the card choices that will allow it to have success. Yeah, right. I, we're probably pretty close to that happening. Yeah, for sure. I, I think so. Uh, I want to hear more about this uh, mono blue <laughs> storm. <laughs> yeah, storm that kind of that kind of broke out. I played against it in the Swiss of the PTQ. There was one list in the top eight, and it. Let's see. Um, let me see where else it's it's popped up. But it's it's definitely popping up. Like you can't play leagues. You can't play standard leagues right now without playing against this deck. And it is just... So it's like the New Rage, but it, not, it might not be good, but people are like really enjoying playing it? Is I, that, like, that kind of feel? I don't think it's good. Um, yeah. So this is 
you know, the like paradoxical outcome inspiring statuary uh, Etherflux reservoir, reservoir is what it's called. Oh yeah. 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 So <laughs> and um I think that the printing of Psy made the deck a lot better. Psy Master Thopterist. Um yeah. It it comes down, makes chump blockers, lets you turn mana and artifacts into more cards, which then lets you do more broken stuff. Once it has Inspiring Statuary in play, and it's just like casting Commit to Memory for a blue, and uh, casting Paradoxical Outcome for a blue, like the deck is is very, very powerful when it's going off. But it has a hard time if it's getting clocked. So this is, to me, it's a super polarizing meta choice, or a super polarized meta choice. The Vraska's Contempt decks have a, a really hard time beating it. Uh, unless you're a Vraska's Contempt deck that happens to be leaning really hard towards red and is just overloaded on a Braids, your cards just don't interact with the deck, and even if you board into like a couple of counter spells and stuff, they just have too many things that are going to beat you. Because even the you know even the bolus decks aren't that good at clocking, but if you can clock them, they just don't really have the defenses to really let themselves survive. And I think part of the problem is that Psy is very good, but it's very good against just like creatures attacking, and it's not good against Goblin Chain Whirler, and it's not good against Steel Leaf Champion. So your main defensive apparatus like has some pretty massive weaknesses against kind of two of the biggest aggressive archetypes in the format. Um, and so that's that's where I see this really struggling is that it, it, like Psy is great, but it's only great if like the creatures they're attacking you with are just like Scrap Heap Scrounger and this uh, like on crop Crasher and they never draw their Chain Whirler. And there's just too many ways that that defensive plan goes really wrong um but it does beat up on the Vraska's contempt decks so if you're only going to play against those then sure play this deck <laughs> yeah yeah but unfortunately our read of the metagame right now is full of a bunch of red decks and mono green decks yep and those do not sound like decks i want to be playing against with this deck. no and especially not black red just that combination of of chain whirler good clock uh a braids is not a beatable combination for this deck so uh, right right I, i'm as cool as this deck is it's it's not one that i'm i'm really interested in um yeah but it, it you know it has the sweetness factor like people are gonna enjoy playing it and yeah it's definitely one of the bigger factors in terms of like popularity of decks maybe probably not at team events specifically and then that's the context that i'm looking at standard under um, but you know, if you're looking at like playing in a local metagame or something, you know, oh, yeah. somebody's going to show up with this deck for sure. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, so. yeah, it, I, I definitely am not saying like, don't play this deck. Like you, like you will enjoy playing it. The games you win, like, I think you feel really smart. So if, you know, if you're more concerned with like going to an FNM, going to a, a local Saturday tournament, going, going to a 1k, whatever. And you just want to like do cool stuff. Like this deck does cool stuff. Casting like one mana commit to memories, like one mana paradoxical outcomes, and then replaying a bunch of artifacts and stuff like that. Like, it is really cool, and it is when you get going is doing the most powerful stuff in standard. 
but uh, the sure. the weaknesses are are gaping. I would I would classify that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. So that and that's kind of sad because I feel like I feel like those gaping weaknesses is just like a constant thing that always happens with any sort of combo deck in standard. Is it? It's just never quite mm-hmm. good enough. Or powerful enough or fast enough in order to like make up for the fact that it's just often a little clunky you yeah know what i mean right like the only real combo deck in standard i mean and real is like a weird adjective to work with it, but the most combo-y deck that is tier one in standard is god gift and all of those yeah, god yeah. gift just have a mid-range plan backing up the the combo threat um, right for sure for sure yeah it is really weird that this storm combo deck has Goblin Chain Whirler as a primary weakness. <laughs> that's <laughs> Yeah. That's, that's pretty sad, sad. But I guess kind of makes sense. Two notes before we move on to like legacy and stuff. Um, I'm a little... It's difficult for me to work out what the primary red deck is right now. Uh, for a while, and one of the reasons that I was... that I picked up Mono Green in the first place was... Um, like the premier red deck that most people were playing uh, was iterations of very fast, very low to the ground Wizards Lightning decks. And whether those had Flame of Keld or Hazret in the place of the flame, like they were running like the Viashino Pyromancer, the two mana two one that shocks your opponent when it comes into play, which enabled them to run Wizards Lightning. So just like this critical mass of face burn that I, I believe the reason for this deck becoming so popular on Magic Online. And it got to a point where I was only playing against this in leagues and was really not playing against Black Red at all. Um, and I think the reason for this was that the Nicol Bolas Vraska's Contempt decks that were very, very popular week one of Standard and continue to be pretty popular, um, but they were able to outvalue a lot of the Black Red decks and get to a point where like you Vraska's Contempt, one of their fours, and then you Torrential Gear Hulk, another one of their fours, and you're meanwhile, like your Nicole Bolas like got a card and is killing them. And the slower black red decks like really struggled against that sort of strategy. But going way under the Vrasis Contempt decks, like really difficult to keep up with that critical massive face burn. Really difficult. Like if you get a flame of Keld going against these mid-range decks and then you just like last the two turns and then you throw a couple of burn spells like you just tend them or something and no amount of nicole bolusing is going to keep you from dying to that so that's what i think the story was with those mono red decks coming around and that made the the green deck a particularly good choice because unless they have soul scar mage then they struggle pretty hard against just the dudes that you put into play and that you know worked pretty well i definitely had success with mono green but now and especially in paper that didn't seem to play out as much like in the open in the classic like we still seem to be primarily in a world of black red decks and i don't know exactly like what the disconnect is there but you know that's kind of where we're at right now for sure i mean i feel like so one of the things I've been thinking a lot about and talking a lot about lately have been the the factors that make a particular deck popular. And we kind of just talked about it with the with the storm deck. Is that you're you're seeing it all over Magic Online because it it's sweet and 
people want to play it in, in Magic Leagues, you know? So that's like a factor that makes it popular. And so I think red-black aggro and and just like the really low-to-the-ground mono-red aggro decks that you're talking about have like also pretty particular factors that like are unique to each of them that make them more or less popular. I think that the the like the really low-to-the-ground mono-red like Flame of Keld style decks with the Wizard's Lightning and everything definitely get kind of the, the, the popularity factor in terms of like I think that more people are more inclined to register a deck similar to that, right? Because the the plan of that deck is so clear every game, and players really like that. It's really easy to say, hey, all right, I'm going to be the standard seat for this tournament. I'm going to pick up this really fast mono-red aggro deck because I know how to play a mono, uh, like a, an aggro deck, and you know my my knowledge of the format might not be as good. So I, you know one of the strengths that the black versions have is that they have the ability to like change their they, they have the ability to like go bigger right and like change up their plans post board but that requires so much more knowledge that i guess a lot of people have in both week one and just like in general in team events so people might be just like shying away from the the red black aggro decks a little more and like that might be a factor that makes them want to play the other one but looking at the results it is pretty clear, I believe, that the the bigger red-black aggro decks are just having more success. And yep. the people who are willing to put in the time and effort to to play this the black version and put the time and effort into like figuring out, you know, the matchups and the plans and everything, those are the players who are kind of more invested in putting in more time, have the ability to put more time into like preparing and everything. And as a result, they're just gonna have more success overall. Which is why I think that when we're looking at all these results, we see so many red-black decks and so few mono-red decks, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and we've talked before about how important it is to be able to transition the speed of your deck. And the 22-land Flame of Keld deck is just not able to do that. And if you can make that hard call that like in almost all of my matchups, I just want to be this hyper hyperactive, low-to-the-ground deck... Then, then sure, but standard often is going to demand more angles of attack from you than that, and yeah, so so we're we're definitely seeing that pay off. You know, this this open top eight has three red black aggro decks in it. JJ from your team chose red black aggro. Uh, other good players in this tournament chose red black aggro. I mean, you know, so, so, certainly some very good players on mono red. Aaron Barrich was on mono red. A Wizards Lightning build and uh, Chris McCord was on Mono Red. I know he's a very good player, and so it's it's not like a crazy choice certainly, but I, I think the results are just are more there for that red black deck that being able to, you know, this uh, the, from the winning team. This one even was so far as to had so much black mana that it has a Vraska's Contempt in the sideboard and four duresses. Like that's how how mid rangey this this build is. And, you know, maybe that's just where you want to be. And I, I think probably, I don't think that the Bolas decks are 100% are going to always be the favored decks in these matchup, in, in, you know, against Red Black. And so I think figuring out your plan against the Grixis decks, uh, and I think that's what these Red Black players did, um, understanding the place of like, 
you know, heart of Kieran in the matchup and when to be aggressive. And and these are calls you have to make after seeing like exactly what cards are in their deck. So it can be, it can be difficult because there's so many iterations of these Grixis decks. But if you can figure that out to be favored against the Vrasis Contempt decks, then you don't necessarily need to go with the like cheating the meta route of jamming your deck full of Flame of Keld. So <laughs> yeah. And also just kind of as an aside, I have played a lot of these mono-red Flame of Kel decks and come to the conclusion that I believe that the deck is very strong, but the card Flame of Keld is close to unplayable in my opinion. <laughs> so if you're, if you're you know, somebody who, who enjoys... If you're somebody like me who enjoys these like really low-to-the-ground, aggressive, get-em-dead mono-red decks, you should play it. I think it's, you know, both a lot of fun and, like fine in the metagame but just don't don't play flame of kill that card is not good <laughs> <laughs> i buy that i mean it's definitely a, a dice rolling kind of card like play your when you play your flame of Keld, it's really like playing a turn one burning inquiry or something like that you're just really hoping it works out super well for you um, sure right right yeah like like maybe i could get behind having one in your deck if you ever <laughs> draw two copies of that card so it's bad. horrendous and it's just a little slow for what I want to be doing with this mono red deck because a lot of the time these it's easy to like picture like the perfect scenario especially with a card like Flame of Keld where you dump all your hand play Flame of Keld draw additional cards draw some burn spells and then when you cast them it deals plus two damage or whatever so it has this like narrative that people really like but the reality is that the games generally the games that you win with this like hyper linear mono red deck. A lot of them are really close, and a lot of the time, if you're playing against good players, they know and understand that they need to be racing you, and they're going to be putting a clock on you, and you're going to need to, you know, rip a burn spell sometimes, or you're going to need to be able to, like, utilize all of your spells on, like, the crucial last turns of a game in order to kill them, and Mm -hmm. if one of those cards is Flame of Keld then you're like you're you have to wait an additional turn to like see the extra cards and then an additional turn after that to utilize the damage effect on it yeah. and in the close games you're just you're just dead you just don't have point. time yeah i mean and that's yeah i think that's why aaron barrage's list just is a flame of keld list but with hazards instead of flame of keld yeah, and that's whew, that's so much better. <laughs> Hazret. I don't know if you've ever cast Hazret, but uh it's pretty it's, good. It's that card is decent. It's, it's okay. It's pretty good. He's also got, and I think this is a sweet metagame read. He's also got two carries of his expertise in the main deck. Playing See, the those mono- are cards that I really like to get behind with these mono red decks because mm-hmm. those are cards that are really good in these like close games that you see all the time in like red mirrors and against like mono green. Um, these these games, just like the way that these games play out, is is like so much closer than you might anticipate and if you rip a flame of keld you're gonna be sad but if you rip a karizev's expertise now game. we're talking you it's know what game I mean? give yeah. me your give me that galta <laughs> yeah well and that's so. exactly what i was like this is a great read if you're gonna play against mono green this is a huge way of of beating that deck like a lot of times especially against the hazard decks the board gets a little bit clogged up and then the mono green deck plays a galta and says go, and as long as they untap, they win. And and every time I did it, I was like, I hope this 
I hope my opponent is not a psychopath and isn't about to carry Zev's expertise my 12-12. And it never happened to me, but there was always an opening for it, so... Well, I, I might have told the story on the podcast before, but I was playing against... I was playing Mono Green in, the, like, the first week of Steel Leaf Champion Bring Printed. Yeah. <laughs> and I had... I played a Galta against my... Like, it was the, the Mono Red Gift Goblins deck, I guess. And... He was on the play, and his turn three was playing the exert to take an extra combat step, combat celebrant. So he played that on turn three. And then my turn three was Galta. And then his turn four was active trees with my Galta, exert my extra, my combat celebrant to like <laughs> 30 me. <laughs> and the game just immediately ended. And I was like, oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> So, um, yep. yeah, it'll happen to you. It'll happen to you. Yeah, I, I'm sure it will. And especially us loudly encouraging people to run a couple of carries of expertise can't can't be helping my case here. Um, yeah, I mean, even if it happens to me again, I'll be happy because it's, it's fine. just so sweet. Yeah, definitely. We should also take a minute to talk about Vinemare. Yeah, that card is really. Vinemare's good. definitely been a big big talk of talk of standard recently. Yeah, it's it's the card that makes me think that if I'm going to be playing a, a Grixis mid-rangey deck, I, I think the stripe of that deck I would lean towards is definitely one with a number of essence scatters in it, because that insulates you against Vine Mare and Blossoming Defense at the same time. It's just a, a pretty powerful card right now, and gives you game against other Torrential Gear Hulk decks. I think Essence Scatter is just a really strong card at the moment. Um, but yeah, Vine Mare was I can get very. That very good for me i mean i just brought it in against all the all the blue black decks and you know played in such a way to try to bait out the essence scatters as, as best i could and as long as i resolve the vine mare usually it just resulted in like 10 damage or something like that an almost free win and it, it just does a lot of stuff so if you're not a mono green deck, you want to be prepared for the Vine Mares. If you are a mono green deck, then I think it is time to figure out exactly how to use these Vine Mares as best as possible. And I think that nobody has quite done it yet. So I've I liked having them out of the sideboard, but I think and and, and my my reasoning for you know, I I've said to a bunch of people when they've been talking to me about Vine Mare. Like what I've been saying is like I think I would main deck this card if it weren't for Goblin Chain Whirler, and and after seeing the the classic results, Brandon Dempsey won the classic with Mono Green Aggro with just four Vine Mares in the main deck, and I that seemed iffy to me at first, but the more I think about it, I like I can be on board with this, and there's a couple of reasons for that, which is number one, this is a way to turn on your Ronus, that is really, really hard to mess with. So that gives it extra value there against the removal-heavy decks, um, including even the red decks. Um, number two, it doesn't... I don't think it's as bad against Goblin Chain Whirler as, like, I would assume it is. Like, yes, 3-3 First Strike beats a 5-3 in combat. But if you have a hand with an early Vine Mare in it, then you know you don't need to spend your blossoming defenses protecting your other guys from removal because you have the one standalone threat that's going to win you the game so you can reserve your blossoming defenses to having your vine mare win combat against goblin chain whirlers 
So I think that it might have more legs in the main deck than I had assumed before. Um, one thing that I don't really like is that this list that won the Classic went down to two Blossoming Defense. I think that's the kind of one of the reasons that this deck is a deck, and I would try to find a way to have just have the full playset available. Well, that makes sense, for sure. I do kind of want to touch on something you said a little earlier, which is using Essence Scatter as like a, an, an out to answer Vine Mares out of the Grixis decks. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good answer. But one of the answers that I really like out of the the Grixis decks, um, if you can build your mana to afford it, is actually um, Sweltering Suns sure. and Hour of Devastation. These cards, I think, are kind of like underplayed right now, particularly Hour of Devastation. I think it's just insanely strong right now. <laughs> um, and they give these decks a pretty clean answer to just kind of like a lot of the dorky creatures that happen to be you know, on the battlefield from from the mono green deck, mm-hmm. and then being able to kill Vine Mirror with your three mana spell is is crucial in a lot of spots. Yeah, yeah, and I I'm wondering about like that's that's a tough like sort of sideboarding battle there because you don't want like all of your thrashing Brontodons against the blue black decks all the time, but. If they're bringing in Sweltering Suns, then you want all of your four toughness creatures. And if you know that they're keeping in all their four toughness creatures, then I think you don't... I mean, I, I guess that just makes me want Hour of Devastation. Hour of Devastation just seems very good to me right now. Yeah, right now, honestly, Hour of Devastation seems just way strong. Way strong. So I'm, I'm definitely liking the sound of that right yeah. now. If you're, if you're looking to like metagame pretty hard, that deck beats up on red and green. Just any creature deck right now. Yeah. So it's a good place to be. We are we trying to play some some Sifter Worm Hour of Devastation deck? Don't tempt <laughs> so, me, Chris, because you know I will. It has Hour of Promise in it too. And it I love so that card. Hours. Eight hours. <laughs> it's an eight hour deck. Uh, oh yeah. man. Um, <laughs> so right, you know, definitely definitely some ideas brewing in there. But but yeah, I, I definitely think that particularly, um, you know, if you're looking for outs for Vine Mare, uh, yeah. Hour of Devastation and, and Sweltering Suns are, are Yeah, yeah, take a, take a page from the, the blue-white control book, basically, and, and run those sweepers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, definitely. well, that's a lot about Standard, but, you know, we've definitely been working pretty hard on Standard lately. Um, I guess, like, my last thing that I'm thinking about going forward from here is that we've got a couple of different decks putting some key pressures on the format. And, like, the mono green decks are asking for you to play removal that specifically hits its creatures. So whether that is something like Hour of Devastation or Sweltering Suns, like we just said, or if it just means, like, leading more towards cast downs and and cut to ribbons and essence scatters over something like a Braids. But that asks you to cut down on your abrades specifically because abrade is you know kind of medium against the mono green deck although it is good at killing heart of kirin but it doesn't kill a lot of the actual threatening creatures from there so and then we've got another end of the spectrum which is you know i mean maybe storm is one of these decks but god pharaoh's gift of some stripe is definitely one that is saying like if you're running removal spells you better make sure a bunch of them are abrades or else none of your cards interact with my deck um, and so I think a good place to be going forward is to accurately predict, like, 
which removal spells are people going to be running, and then which end of that spectrum do I want to be on? And right now I'm kind of feeling like being on a gift deck is very likely to be the right place. I see a lot of people trimming on their braids for like bigger, like harder hitting creature removal spells. So I, I think keeping a careful eye on what decks people are playing and exactly what card choices people are playing. And you might just be able to choose the threats that are very well positioned and just have a really good weekend. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Oh, also Cat's 5-0 to comp league. So that happened. <laughs> <laughs> a johnny's pride mate bunch, bunch of life gain cats some of them have four legs some of them have two it's like very uncomfortable looking at the the decks but, <laughs> but nice yeah. nice so that's standard uh, i don't know if you got any more to add about this format or if we should move on to a couple of notes on legacy i'm down to talk about some legacy cool um yeah i mean we don't talk about it that much but this is like this is actually week one legacy basically, because we had some bands and then we had a tournament. And there's another team tournament coming up uh, this weekend in Philadelphia, so Legacy, super relevant to our, you know, SEG folks listening. So, yeah, uh, you were there at the tournament. I know you were at least watching some Legacy. So what were, do you have any impressions of sort of what it felt like? New Legacy, no Deathrite Shaman, no Gitaxian Probe? Yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of people were trying out a lot of different things. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it felt like it definitely not settled at all. But looking at the top tables and everything, I was not really surprised to see kind of like what, what ended up coming out on top. The uh, the Storm deck that Bryant Cook played felt just like pretty solid. You know, we, we lost Gitaxian Probe, but that's, you know... Yeah, that's just so, training wheels. So kind of substituted. <laughs> just very powerful training wheels, training treads. <laughs> um, yeah, but but yeah. So basically substituted with with rights of flame and and like an extra empty the warrens. Uh, yeah, just to give the deck sure. a little more resiliency. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I felt like Sneak and Show was in a pretty good spot. You know, we saw Bob Huang end up playing that, and uh, you know he's just gonna have success in Legacy no matter what he plays. But it's true. He, the fact that he chose to play. Uh, sneak and show is pretty telling because I, I know that Bob doesn't enjoy that deck. So if he you know if he if he pulled the trigger on that mm. you know regardless of you know not really enjoying it as much, it probably means that he liked it for the at least for the first week first week of Legacy. Makes sense. The thing I was most excited to see was uh, No Walker's Grixis Delver list, which contained four Bowmat Courier. Yep. Let's go. <laughs> I've been preaching that card for a long time, and and Noah Walker played it. So immediately, so now. immediate success <laughs> when it didn't have a one-two to run into. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know, to be fair, Noah Walker's been talking a lot to Dylan, and Dylan's been hearing a lot from Zan and I preaching this card, and so you know, not really surprised to see him play it. But yeah, yeah. But he, the fact that that the maybe the premier Grixis Delver player stayed on the deck after eight of its cards were banned and put Bomek Courier in and had immediate success with it. Like, that certainly is a, an important data point. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I agree. And and I, and I legitimately am being earnest when I say that I believe that... I think that all of the Delver decks in Legacy from now on should have a playset of Bomek Couriers. It should just be... All right, what's in my Delver deck? Oh, Delvers, Bomat Couriers. Uh, Brainstorm. Yep. You know, Wastelands, right? It's just like part of it, I think. It's, it's going to be really important. So, yeah, it's. I, I, I also see that a lot of people like haven't caught on, like the Teamer Delver player 
who got second place did not end up playing any um but i think that it fits really well in the teamer as well just kind well, of so like that's, really goes along with that's what plan. i was kind of going to ask about because you can only run a certain number of threats in a delver deck because like if you draw three threats and like aren't able and, and like you can't brainstorm them away like you just you die to whatever the actual powerful legacy thing that's happening to you is like you need to draw mostly answers and like one or two threats so and i mean the main draw of the team or delver list is that i mean like like certainly like the stifle wasteland thing is is part of it but you could do that in any blue list but the like mana denial and then having this like long-term threat of nimble mongoose is like a really big part of the deck you know you slow the game down you make sure that nobody can do anything and then nimble mongoose just like plinks in and then starts you know, just does like 18 shroud damage over the course of the game. Do you think that deck can afford to fit couriers in there as well? Because like, I just don't know. And I'm not a legacy deck builder by any means, but it, it definitely seems like there's a, a, a really narrow tightrope you have to walk with between your, your threats and your answers and that sort of deck. Yeah, right. I mean, with Teamer Delver in particular, it's you're you're definitely running into a kind of a fine line because the deck is so tight right now. There mm-hmm. aren't really many like flex slots, and I think one of the reasons that Grixis was so easily able to fit it in was because we just got eight cards banned out of it. Yeah, it just got eight cards <laughs> banned out of it, so we we got some slots to play with. You know what I mean? But so that you know, and I I also don't think that I'm a good enough legacy builder to 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 be able to appropriately answer that question. But I do know that the card Bomat Courier is more powerful than people think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the cards that I've been using a lot of hyper hyperbole language lately, so I'm, I'm trying to watch myself <laughs> here. Um, but I'm you know I'm legitimately serious about this card, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to you know phrase it in a way that's appropriate and not say Bomat's busted, um, even though that's what I believe. But <laughs> whenever a card kind of breaks the color pie, then you really need to keep an eye on it um, in terms of just, like, you know, potential for breaking a format. Deathrite Shaman was a pretty clear example of that where it just gave the black decks access to a mana dork, which is something that broke the color pie and was, like, really, really busted. Bomat Courier gives red an access to insane card advantage which is not something that red should have access to. And I think that because of that, then we need to keep an eye on that card and its ability to, for two-man investment spread across two turns, draw you a lot of cards, give mm-hmm. you a lot of card advantage. And that effect is not something that I think should exist. Like, I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, we're talking like, Cards for cheap, drawing you a lot of cards, is something that in the history of Magic has been really, really busted, you know? Because I think that it's very easy for these Delver decks and all of their disruption to clear a path for Bomat Courier, that means that they are going to be able to utilize that card getting in over the course of four turns, and they can aggressively trade off all of their resources with their opponent's cards, Sure. And after they have done so, then they get to refuel. That, to me, seems like something that is going to 
be very, very strong in, in Legacy moving forward. So I don't know exactly what the deck should look like and where it should fit in, but just the the way that the card fits in well with these decks' plans of like aggressively trading for all of your opponent's resources, um, stumbling them on mana, uh, you know, um, keeping their threats off the board, and all of the while getting in incremental cards off of Bomat Courier for the investment of just like you know you can play Wasteland and cast that card on turn one if you right. want. Right. Um, true. True. I mean, that's uh, that's definitely not nothing. Yeah. It's not nothing. You should probably, you know, you're not really happy to keep no. Wasteland hands. But, it, but if you went you know, to five maybe, or something, like, it gives you an option. Or, you know, even if you're, like, even, like if you're playing in a Delver Mirror when, where you have, like, one blue source and a Wasteland as your cards in hand and you're, like, worried about getting wasted and you're, like, on the draw or something... Uh, you can like play your wasteland and play your Bomat courier and then like not expose your other colored source for mm-hmm. you know your opponent's wasteland on their turn two or something like that. That's right. like a real play that I that I could see happening a lot um, once people figure out like you know magic players especially in legacy are really good at figure out like figuring out the niche plays that like g- give you advantage like playing around days and stuff like that. And I think that like maybe like wasteland Bomat courier could be like you know, the next level play of this is me playing around your wasteland because I don't want to get my colored source wasted or something like that. I can um, see that. And there's so, that, there's... so it is, so it is like a real applications for it. And there's... If you're looking for niche plays, like, Bomat Courier is is full of them. Like, all those ponders that you've cast where you want two of the cards but you don't want the third one, like, Bomat Courier to the rescue. You put, like, good card, bad card, good card, draw the good card, attack with your Bomat Courier. Like, it just, like does all this you know it gets rid of like one of your brainstormed away cards it um you know all all that like awkwardness of keeping a card on top on the play and then turn one bowmat courier and then passing like that becomes a huge like advantage in a uh, a deck manipulation format like legacy where it just like gives all of your deck manipulation a little bit a little bit more oomph but it does require a lot of care you gotta figure out whether you want to cast your cantrips before or after combat and that sort of thing so uh it, it's it's probably going to require a breaking in period and i would definitely encourage encourage you to get used to playing with that card with cantrips before trying to just load it up and go to a tournament yeah right it it definitely makes it more difficult to cast your cantrips and and casting cantrips in legacy is already insanely it's difficult. already so hard but but it's you know it's adding in another element that could even make your cantrips better um, i think i think overall it just improves all of your cantrips yeah um but if it's it's also easy to screw up right because if you're not thinking about it then you're gonna sequence incorrectly and and do something wrong right yep Right, um, right. So it's it's going to take, I think, a lot of players a lot of time to figure out exactly, you know, getting used to playing with these cards together. Uh, like, I remember, who, who was it? Was it Martin Yuza, I think, tweeted? Man, I thought that playing Bomat Courier with the pregame scry was hard, and now I'm trying to play it with Legacy Cantrips. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, big yikes, big yikes. Yep. But, but yeah, I... Uh, I think that it does give a lot of utility to, to, to the deck. So Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, Legacy is definitely a format of, like, tiny decisions with huge consequences. And 
uh, like the reason the cantrip decks are so good is you get to make so many more tiny decisions than your opponents, and this adds in some more and just like raises that skill ceiling, but gives you that many more percentage points. I think so. I don't know if that is necessarily like a good thing for the format or a bad thing, but it's certainly one that a, a player who's willing to put in all of the effort that it requires can take advantage of. And I like it because it's going to reward people, like reward the skillful play, right? It's mm-hmm. not it's not like a, you know, a card that everybody's going to be able to play and have success with. It's going to take effort and skill and reward the 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 you know meticulous play which i think is something that's just healthy for magic so yeah i mean i do think that it can go too far and it's it's one of the things that at times turns me off of legacy in general like i i I mean i i agree that better magic play consists of difficult decisions and keeping track of things that you you know, you learn to keep track of over time that you wouldn't even think of before. Like, the first time you play a blue deck, you don't know what order to cast your ponders and brainstorms in, and then you you learn, like, how to sequence your cantrips properly to actually get you the deepest into your deck and not have them dis- disrupt each other and that sort of thing. And that's good. But I think there's a point where, like, a format can kind of collapse under the weight of its own, like, number of complicated decisions. You know, like like... Yuza's tweet was definitely like kind of tongue-in-cheek, definitely joking about how difficult it is, and, and everybody knows that, that Yuza's good and he's going to learn how to play this deck very well, but I, I think there's some truth to it, and like a lot of times I find it very stressful to play Legacy and find myself almost not enjoying it sometimes just because it's so easy to just like miss one of the things that matters in your sequence of like five or six decisions on one turn. And, and just get hugely, hugely punished for it. And I, I think those things are good in certain doses, but at some point when there's just too much of it, it can be a little poisonous to a format. And I, I don't know that, like, Bomat Courier being a decent card, you know, somersaults the format over that point or anything, but I, I, I think it is something to think about. Yeah, yeah. I understand. I understand where you're coming from there, because it's it just kind of, like adds to the 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 barrier to entry into legacy you know mm-hmm. now not only do you have to buy um you know thousands of dollars worth of cards in order to play but also you need to learn how to do that how to like play and you know make all these plays and everything it's it makes it tough to get into the format and i understand that perspective for sure yeah but you know from the perspective of a very spiky player who's trying to maximize percentage points and is willing to put into the time to become the best possible, you know, maximizing decision points in a game is certainly something you want to be doing as long as you are confident in your decisions. Yeah, yeah. Other things that we noticed about Legacy, um, yeah, I think Sneak and Show was, uh, it, it looked to be the best week one choice to me. Like, it dodges a lot of the ways people are Especially, like, the disruption that people are doing. Like, being an Ancient Tomb deck is pretty great if people are attacking mana. That seems pretty nice. Like, an Ancient Tomb Lotus Petal deck, it, it looked really difficult for Team or Delver to, like, lock Sneak and Show out of a game. So, that seemed powerful. I mean, probably biased because most of the Sneak and Show coverage that I watched was of Bob Huang, like, playing around his opponent in, in pretty gross ways. Playing circles around <laughs> his opponents. Yeah, Just, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. But I did really like 
uh, Arcane Artisan out of the sideboard. I think that's a huge, huge addition to the deck. I think it's so Yo, much yeah, better yeah, yeah. than than Through the Breach. Um, so I, I don't know if you've gotten to to talk with those guys who who came up with that plan, but it, it seemed really yeah. Good. The right, I do think that Arcane Artisan makes makes sneak and show definitely gives it a boost right and it just like adds to the consistency and speed particularly like post board um where you can just kind of like jam this on turn one or two if you have a soul land which is just another really powerful thing to to be able to do right and additionally it gets around so many of the sideboard counter spells that people bring in against you right right like a uh like a delver player on the play might keep Something that's got, you know, no force of will, but it has Flusterstorm and Spell Pierce and, you know, a Daze or something like that. And, um, you know, it does get hit by the hard, quote-unquote, counterspells. Um, but if you, you know, you can... Uh, daze is a bad example, but, like, Flusterstorm and Spell Pierce and, like, those type of spells whiffing on Arcane Artisan, I think is, like, more relevant than, than people yeah. might expect. yeah. And, and if they have to start keeping in a bunch of lightning bolts against you, like, that's just a win for you. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, but right, I, you know, I definitely, for that reason, believe that it does belong in the sideboard. And it probably yes. will lose equity long term when, if it, like, becomes a thing in this deck. Uh, because then, you know, the double players will catch on and be like, okay, I gotta relieve in a couple bolts. And that could really get you pretty hard if you're on the artisan plan. Right. I mean, you don't want it to get bolted, certainly. But, like, them drawing bolt when you don't draw Artisan is better for you than when you both draw... When you draw Artisan and they draw bolt, I think. Uh, unless, yeah, yeah. you know, that bolt is increasing their clock in a relevant way. So, right. it, you I know, mean, it, yeah, your Artisan is always going to be something that they're going to have to deal with one way or the other. And yeah. their bolt is not always going to have a target. So that exactly. you do come out on top, I think, in that in that... Uh, right, over over fifty post board games or something like that. Like the yeah, yeah, yeah. player is in a better spot. But there are right. certainly gonna be games where you go like pedal, ancient tomb, artisan, go, and they just bolt it and then you're out of resources and you're like staring down a delver with, with only ancient tomb in play costing you life every time you want to cast a spell. But like I think in general, yeah, artisan is just very, very strong. Yeah. I agree. Lands seems really bad right now. Like, Nibble Mongoose is just lights out against that deck until they come up with some tech for it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, um, the Goose is loose, and that definitely is not great for um, traditional lands builds. Mm -hmm. I think that you can have lands builds that are prepared for it. Like, yeah. maybe you run Engineered Explosives. Yep. Um, or, or Board like Goyf or something. Or something like that. Like, like Team or Delver has a hard time against Goyf, so that's... It, just being on a sideboard creature plan, I don't think is terrible. Um, I, I agree. So, right, I, I think that, you know, there's definitely, like, room for adjustment, but I think Lands is definitely going to be one of the last decks to kind of, like, readjust, because it's got a lot of... It's, it's kind of like the control deck of the format, where mm -hmm. it's, you know, its build needs to be, like, pretty specific towards... Like knowing what your opponent, what what the field is doing, and how they're going to be able to interact with you, and how you want to interact with them. So right. you need to tune your lands list in in a more defined metagame more often. It's hard to just like get right off the bat. Makes sense. And because we're talking about things like you have to decide between ports and ghost quarters, you have to decide like if you're splashing 
blue or you know some other color for you know particular things that are happening mm-hmm. yeah and i mean you're a you're a gamble crop rotation deck so every single slot, slot matters, matters. Yeah. yeah 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 so right so i think that lands while while legacy is still getting its feet on the ground i think that lands is going to struggle to have the correct builds but i would not at all be surprised to see lands have a resurgence once the legacy metagame settles down into something that a competent lands player can tune towards yeah but yeah right now right now it's it's gonna be tough right when your your attentions are so divided between like like sneak and show and storm and i I mean reanimator didn't have that much success but you know decks like sneak and show and storm as like really assertive combo decks and then the delver decks who you know the old 75s were really good against the delver decks that existed at the time they're not good against the 75s that just have four three three shrouds in them so i i think it's a, a really difficult spot for lands to be in right now until they adjust pretty significantly and yeah the, i think the meta needs to like you know move towards one of its poles a little more so that the lands players can make some calls there yeah yeah i agree these nick fit lists are looking pretty sweet uh with the the planeswalker academy rector uh, this seems to be more of an online thing but flashing back cabal therapy to pull a, a karn or a nicole bolas or something out of your deck is very cool i don't know if it's real oh but, yeah for sure but it's sweet <laughs> yeah agreed uh right i think that nick fit and honestly just like i also think that just like noble hierarch gets a pretty big boost in legacy because now your mana advantage like means something so that's like a pretty good like place to be an edge that you can now gain in legacy whereas before kind of like everybody had death shaman but now you know the people who are playing green for noble hierarch do are gonna reap the rewards of having a, a, a good man advantage. I think yep. that deck might be uh, one of the better ones to utilize that. Yeah, Noble Hierarch is definitely the premier mana producing one drop in the format now. And since not everybody is accelerating their mana with Deathrite Shaman, like the advantage you get from Veteran Explorer is that much more pronounced. And you know, against a, a deck like like Team or Delver, if they're trying to like wasteland you out of the game but your deck is full of, like, basic lands and veteran explorers, you know, don't get your veteran explorer stifled, but other than that, like, their their game plan is really bad against that. Yeah, yeah. But deck certainly has lots of weaknesses, and, like, like the prob- one of the big problems with Nick Fit is, like, this is one of those, like, car salesman slaps the roof, like, this bad boy can fit so many freaking bad cards in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For sure, for sure. Just a lot of non-legacy cards in the list, and like with with certain draws, that just hurts you. Yeah, yeah, agreed. But yeah, so that's legacy week one. Like we rarely get week one legacy. Like what does that even mean? But this was absolutely week one legacy. So good to fun to watch, and I'm definitely looking forward to just seeing more of it this weekend. Same, same. So what are your what are you gonna do for SCG Philly? Are you? Uh, I know you you teamed with uh, Todd and Jody last week, right? Yeah, yeah. So we're running back the same squad. Cool. Um, I think that I'm going to try to play standard this time. Uh, mm-hmm. I played modern last time, and Todd played standard. But I think that we're we're going to switch it up, and I'm going to I'm gonna be taking the standard seat. Cool. And I kind of have it narrowed down between 
you know, the, like, the three, like, the two main decks, I guess, which are Black Red or Mono Green. Uh, sure. But I'm also kind of looking at Blue White Gift a little bit as, like, mm-hmm. a metagame call, if that's something that I want to do. So definitely don't mind the, the look of that deck. Yeah. Yeah, I think those are all valid choices. And, yeah, it's just going to come down to, like, a game day decision almost, I think. Uh, just what what removal are people playing? Like, what lines up the best against the things that I'm, yeah. I'm seeing? Yeah, 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 for sure. So I haven't haven't quite figured out that yet, but um, you know we're working on it. Yeah, I I did see that that Todd was a little bummed after this weekend. He seemed to feel like really, I, I don't know, like he tweeted about that he's he he seemed to feel a little guilty about like his performance over the weekend. But and but I I cannot imagine that you and Jody particularly blamed him for any particular part of his performance. Oh no no no. So. Yeah, yeah yeah. I mean Todd he went 1 and 5 in standard and you know and when you're playing a team event and you you have a poor record and then your team doesn't do well. I I understand how that's going to, you know, bring you down because uh particularly with team events you you want to to um I'm blanking on the word for it, but you you know, you want to show up. Yeah. Right. And he was really excited about his Crixus deck and he thought it was like going to be really really good and then that was kind of like 180 on him when he didn't do very well. But you know, I was there and I was watching and it just seemed like he he was running into some pretty bad variants and definitely don't don't blame him at all and and that's just going to happen every once in a while. You you're, you're going to have a bad bad run um even if you are playing a, a good deck. And then the next day he he went on to eight the 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 standard classic with pretty much the exact same deck. So Right. Um, I so don't. I don't think day. that he failed in preparation at all. Uh, I think that he definitely did a really good job keeping up and everything. So, yep. Um, I'm confident that that we got this in Philly. For sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it just you know it hurts to feel like whatever reason you lose a tournament, whether it is you know in game hunts or failures in preparation or just you know a bad bad run of variants, like it. You take that on the chin as an individual, and then it's fine. But yeah, when you got a team, like, losing, it kind of just hurts that much more. If it is you losing and you feel like you are costing your teammates equity, yeah, that's it's just a tough spot to be in, but we've all been there, and it's, it's a little rough. And, and I guess especially because you guys have had such consistent success as a team that you know, missing day two is like kind of not even on your radar at this point that I, I have to imagine that it was, uh, that was probably part of, uh, of why he, he felt that yeah. way. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, but now we can just say, oh no, now we only have a 67% top eight conversion rate. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, right. So, and you, you punch that up a little bit this weekend. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling it. So it'll be good. All right. So let's, should we move on to our question of the week? Yeah, I think that uh, now's a good time for that. Cool. So Karthak asks, In modern, sideboard slots seem to be incredibly important and can lead to quite difficult decisions given the number of competitive decks in the format. What do you feel is the primary characteristic to focus on when selecting cards for the limited number of slots? Should it be the number of matchups you can bring the card in against, the level of effectiveness of a sideboard card in a specific matchup, or should it be something else? So I I think it's really asking, like, what are you thinking about when you pick sideboard cards? Yeah, for the sideboards, for sure. Um, I think that this, I mean, the answer to this question is so multifaceted that it'll be hard to sure. kind of hit all the points. 
But I, like, here are the major ones, I think, for, like, for modern specifically, and just magic in general, your sideboard should do uh, things to help your the matchups that you're struggling in to a certain point. I think that, like, the best slots in your sideboard could, are, like, like, pretty heavy hitter bullets for the matchups that you're struggling against or even just like the the general archetypes that you're struggling against right mm-hmm. i think a good example of that is like while jeskai control is popular i think that the best sideboard card that humans has access to is sin collector mm-hmm. because sin collector is a house against uh jeskai control specifically and it's easily your worst matchup right so so the you know the equity that you gain out of that is really important so you know you're definitely going to be looking for things to to help help out your the matchups that you are struggling struggling against a little bit or maybe even like you know it's kind of like 50 50 but i really want like a bullet for for those matchups or whatever but it's 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 also important to note that that it's that blanket statement should be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt because there are certain factors that would make me want to ignore bad matchups like, if I'm playing a modern deck, and there is another modern deck that I struggle against a lot, but let's say it's just not terribly popular, and I don't expect to face it terribly often, then at that point, you know, you shouldn't go digging into your, you know, the depths of modern for some bullet against some deck that you're not expecting to see a lot. You can just just hope to fade that matchup and just make the rest of your matchups just a little bit better. But the And then the other general advice that I think is really important for uh, modern sideboard cards is that because modern is so vast, there are so many cyborg cards that have a huge impact on the game. These are cards like Rest in Peace or Stony Silence or uh, I would even go so far as to say like uh, the new oh Dampening, Dampening sphere. sphere. Yeah. So these cards have like a pretty huge impact on how the games play out and on your opponent's game plan. Like depending on the matchup, like if you if you play Damping Sphere against Tron, it's just as good as Blood Moon pretty much most of the time, and and that you know Blood Moon is definitely another like really big impact sideboard card. So like Ancient Grudge, a huge impact sideboard card against uh, artifact decks. So uh, you de- you generally want to be looking for cards that are helpful in the matchups that you need the help in, and have a very large impact on the game, so that when you draw them. Uh, it's it's gonna be generally very sky skyrockets your win percentage if you if you see it right. in your opening hand yeah yeah exactly right so you know uh, I think that those are kind of like the biggest factors you the, like the two biggest factors that you can say is like um, helps the matchups that you need the help in and also has a very very high impact right I don't really want to see like an extra fatal push in my sideboard as much as I would want to see like maybe a sweeper or something like that. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be having like that extra fatal push in your sideboard, but you know, you might determine after really studying your matchups and everything that you, you like in particular matchups, you just need an extra removal spell. And that is important too. But you know, the, the, the slots that I'm pretty like more excited for are like the high impact. Right. Um, you know, and there's there's kind of a sliding changers. scale, like an XY relationship. Like the more of a hammer it is in a specific, like especially bad matchup, the less the less I'm concerned about making sure it's coming in in multiple places. Um, you know, like rest in peace. 
like, okay, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of graveyard decks. So Rest in Peace is kind of a bad example. Because, um, like, I'm bringing it in against, like, Mardu Pyromancer, like, the the, the most the heavily played mid-range deck in the format, as well as Dredge <laughs> and KCI. But, you know, like, Stony Silence. Like, that's coming in against KCI, and that's coming in against Affinity. And, like, Lantern and stuff doesn't really exist anymore. It's, like, very medium against Tron, but sometimes just... Sometimes does just win you the game there. But overall, not a ton of matchups that Stony Silence is coming in against. But it's so powerful in the matchups that are the reason I'm putting it in my sideboard that, you know, that uh, becomes less important. Like, having a couple of Thought Seizes in the sideboard of Hollow One. Like, that's not a huge Haymaker card. It's not incredibly powerful. But you bring that in in probably over 50% of your matchups. Like, you default in the main deck to having multiple lightning bolts in your deck. But because there's a bunch of matchups where you just don't really want all of your bolts. So the Thought Seizes are there, so you can swap them out against decks that operate more out of their hand than via creatures on the battlefield. And so, you know, that's a lower power level card, but you can bring it in in so many matchups that the utility ends up being kind of similar to the utility of a big hammer card like a Stony Silence. And I think that's ultimately the balance that... Uh, that Karthak is asking about is that difficulty in modern with the huge number of decks in the format and the kind of narrowness of some of these hammer cards. And and yeah, it is a balance. And I think you got to kind of like visualize that like XY axis in your head and see if it hits the, you know, that that line that goes straight across the middle, that diagonal line of like this is good enough. Am I bringing it in in a bunch of matchups or is it really good in a couple? And one thing that I also think really matters is that different decks have very different sorts of sideboard cards. So something very linear like KCI brings in nature's claims and and absolutely like it brings it in against like affinity because it's a good card against affinity too, uh, just on its own. But the reason that it brings in Nature's Claims is that it brings it in in almost every matchup because it's a linear combo deck with one plan and you've got to beat Stony Silence and you've got to beat Rest in Peace and you've got to beat Relic of Progenitus and stuff and you're using it to guard your proactive plan and you're willing to slow down half a turn or so to have those, you know, to have this shielding sideboard card in place. And... I, yeah, I think it's very, sure. very different. That's a very different sort of sideboard card than than Tron bringing in Nature's Claim. Tron isn't bringing in Nature's Claim to hit Sony Silences. Tron is bringing in Nature's Claim to hit... I mean, I guess it's bringing it in to hit Blood Moon so that it can execute its game plan, but it, it definitely feels like a very different sort of... You know, it's more reactive in a deck like Tron, where it's more like a... In KCI, Proactive. it's kind of... Yeah. Right, like you... You need an additional combo piece in post-board games out of KCI, and one of your combo pieces is the 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 one that answers their answer to your combo. Yeah, I think the fundamental like concept there is that is advice that I think that everybody needs to hear and really take to heart is that you need to make sure that you are sideboarding for sideboarded games, mm-hmm. not for game ones. And I oh, think yeah. that's like a really big like concept that Chris is talking about that a lot of more people need to take to heart where, you know, you're sideboarding for your opponent's rest in peace. You're sideboarding for your opponent's stony silence or whatever, right? Uh, And these are the cards that you need to make sure that you can 
uh, answer, right? So you're you're not sideboarding against their like game one plan or whatever. And this applies so much in Magic, like in literally every format that it's like a really important concept that I want to narrow in. You need to make sure that you're sideboarding for the sideboarded games, not the game ones. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's that's just huge. They are bringing in more removal because you are a creature deck. Does that mean that you know maybe against like 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 the Grixis decks in standard game one like Planeswalkers aren't that good because they're able to threaten them with Glinsley Siphoners into a Bolus or something like that. But maybe post board like they're going heavier on removal and you know especially on the draw they don't really want their Glinsley Siphoners. So maybe your Planeswalkers are fantastic post-board and you put them in there not for this matchup necessarily they're not like a huge haymaker but the quality of the planeswalker goes up because of the the way they've tilted their deck towards removal post-board maybe they have too many Vrastis contempt so it's still not good but you know just not even necessarily like individual cards in their deck but yeah what is their deck composition post-board what are their goals and do you have a way to sort of like juke those goals yeah exactly exactly for sure yeah so right so kind of like all that and then the other like really big piece of advice that i want to give in terms of sideboarding just kind of in general and like how to build your sideboard is that if you're gonna play a deck in a tournament specifically or just like you know anytime that you're gonna play a deck i think that you actually gain a lot of um equity by building your own sideboard over just kind of like playing a stock sideboard if you and and the the basic idea there is that you need to know what all of your sideboard cards are there for if you if you copy somebody's sideboard because you know you trust that they're a better deck builder than you or whatever and you have cards in your sideboard that you don't know what they're there for you don't know why you would ever bring them in you don't know what matchups you would bring them in you probably just shouldn't have that card in your sideboard. Right. You right. really it's really important for you to understand your sideboard. And I think that the easiest way to do that is to build your own sideboard. You know, come up with the cards that you th- believe that you're gonna want based on your experience with the deck and your knowledge of the deck and understanding of how everything works. And that is gonna th- that if you do that, you're likely gonna open up more slots in your sideboard that you you're going to know how to use right because if you don't like i mean of course like the 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 best thing to do is just to always know why a card is in your sideboard and if you don't know why a card is in your sideboard you should you should take the steps to figure that out right but if you you know if you some see somebody sideboard and you don't you just don't get it on like why somebody would have that card in their sideboard or you disagree with their logic maybe you should probably Take that card out of your sideboard and, and figure out what you want in that slot. And and what because what ends up happening is that I, I've fallen into this trap a lot, is that I copy a sideboard and I start playing with the deck and I play many, many matches with it and I just never brought in a particular card because I didn't understand why it was there <laughs> or the matchups that it was there for. Like, uh, and I have like an example of like just recently where... I was tying out, trying out blue white spirits in in uh, in modern uh, after it seven owed the the modern challenge, mm-hmm. and um, in his sideboard he has a hunted phantasm. Uh, <laughs> okay, he, it's and that's a three mana spirit. Uh, it says hunted mana phantasm is unblockable. It's a four six for three. 
Mm-hmm. When Hunted Phantasm comes into play, put five one one red goblin creature tokens <laughs> in put into play under target opponent's control. I'm sure that Crawlony has a reason that this card is in a sideboard, but I have no idea why it would be in a sideboard. Mm-hmm. I don't know what matchup he wants it in. I don't know what like thing he's like trying to fix. I don't know what deck it's going to be a house against in modern. So if I'm going to register this deck like at a tournament specifically, having this card in my sideboard is the same for me as playing 14 sideboard cards. I'm just right. bricking a slot because I don't I have no idea. You'll how never to bring card. it in even yeah. wherever it was intended to be right. brought in. Yeah, and maybe maybe there's a matchup out there that's like really bad for spirits that this card just breaks wide open. But if I don't know what matchup that is, then I'm just I'm just handicapping myself by only playing 14 sideboard cards. Yeah. So and you don't know how the, to make the call of whether or not that matchup is prevalent enough to deserve the exactly. Like right. you can't make any of these decisions. Yeah. So right. So you know, and that that applies for a lot of people. And maybe maybe your understanding of modern like isn't uh, quite as developed like from the context of whatever deck that you're you know you're copying the sideboard from and that's fine and that's just going to happen um so don't feel bad if you don't know you know why the particular card is in the sideboard just do yourself a favor and if you don't understand it come come tournament time take it out of your deck play Mm -hmm. something that you do understand the and where to bring it in and you'll be doing yourself a huge favor there. Even if you have an objectively worse sideboard that the like perfect magic playing robot would do worse with, you will yeah, do yeah, better yeah. with cards that make sense to you and you actually bring yeah. in in matchups. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, like and this advice, you know, if we're talking about like becoming the perfect magic playing robot, this this isn't going to get you there, but in terms of like your tournament win percentage, you know, you're just going to be, you know, you need to have already figured out what all of your cyborg cards are for come come time to, to, to perform, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that's like a, a pretty big... And, and while understanding other people's sideboard choices is a really valuable thing to have and will help you in constructing your sideboards in the future, constructing your own sideboard is also a skill to build and will help in constructing your own sideboards in the future. Yeah. And I think that if you like just try to like if your if your goals are to get better at magic, um, if you just like try to build a sideboard, you're gonna find yourself asking a lot of really really good productive questions about how the game of magic works. You're gonna be asking yourself, okay, what are the matchups that are bad for me? Um, and then you can that's gonna lead you into doing research into you know the the way that your deck functions against the field. And then you can ask yourself, okay, you know, what are the cards that are going to be good in the post-board games of these matchups? Uh, okay, so I know that the way that this matchup plays out is X. Okay, now we're thinking about the way that matches play out. Like, these questions that you can, like, that you're going to need to ask yourself in order to build your own sideboard are so good and such a good tool in order to, like, help you learn about, you know, deck building and... Um, and even just, like, playing, playing games of magic, understanding how games play out, understanding what's important... It's just going to make you a better a better player. So if you if you know that you can ask the right questions and are going to ask questions in order to figure out what sideboard cards you want, then then your just your your understanding of the game of Magic is going to improve. So yeah, biggest tip for 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 getting better at Magic right now, if you want to improve, is start building your own sideboards and definitely look at other people's sideboards and see what is out there, what people are doing, but. Um, uh, 
you know, don't just copy somebody's without really knowing why every single card is in there. And of course, I'm saying this as someone who just top aided a Magic Online PTQ with Andrew Jessup's 75 <laughs> out of 75. But right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do well, as I know. say, not as I do, that <laughs> sort of thing. It's it is easier to to just copy somebody's sideboard and figure it out on the fly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're you know if you're doing that, then then it's likely that you could have put in better preparation for for an event. So you know that's something to take away from that. Yep, definitely. Cool. Well, I think we went a little bit deep on this one maybe a little bit away from the question but it was still i i think probably we're going to talk about sideboarding more in the future you know we spent a lot of time on mulliganing but this is also a huge bit of mechanical yeah the whole concept of sideboarding stuff. and building sideboards is so so deep oh man. but yeah um and hard yeah. really hard i hope that gave i hope that i answered the question initially but then i definitely got got a little derailed into something <laughs> It's an uh, exciting only, topic. You know, tangentially related. <laughs> cool. Well, I think that's probably it for this episode, uh, unless you got anything you want to talk about. Uh, I think that covers it for me. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to give us some support, of course, as always, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast or mtggrindcast.com for all of our stuff. Uh, you can also find links to Collins's coaching services there if you'd like some one-on-one advice on building your sideboard or mulliganing or, you know, I mean, there's other things, but those are the two main parts of magic, really, is mulliganing and sideboard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> for sure. Um, you can find us on Twitter. I'm tweeting from at MTG underscore Grindcast, and Collins is on Twitter as well, at Collins Mullen. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week. Peace.